All right, let's take our Bibles and let's go to Mark chapter 4, shall we? Mark chapter 4, verse 35 is where we're going to be tonight. Jesus is right in the thrust of ministry here, and he's doing a lot of work. I think that would probably characterize his ministry best in those first few months of that first year. He was going around all over the place and healing and teaching, and uh, you can know by the woes that he gives out to the cities that do not uh, believe on him. You can tell there was a significant amount of work that was done. There's actually a statement that says, I can't remember the name of the city that he pronounces the woe against, but he says, if the things that were done in your city were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. They would have come to that change of mind. They would have put on sackcloth and ashes, which is a ceremonial, I mean, that's to say, I'm worthless, I have made a mistake. You know the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't think Jesus was speaking in hyperbole there. I think he was being accurate. And uh, it's pretty interesting to see. We We touched on it briefly this morning, but it wasn't really the main part of the message. But how strong man's unbelief is. I mean, I don't want to get into the things of the world as far as politics go, but you can see it in our politics today. It's like people will see things, they'll see numbers, they'll see unadulterated facts, and yet still they will not come to a change of mind. They're just entrenched in their ways. It's the same thing spiritually. It's the same thing spiritually, folks. You read the word from cover to cover, and you see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the number one denial of almost every world religion, except for, you know, New Age. New Age is kind of interesting. You look at some of the things that they say. They say that, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't really claim it as something that is, you know, actual and rooted in fact. They kind of don this Christ spirit type thing. But even Islam, a major world religion, uh, admires Jesus, acknowledges him as a prophet, all these things, but he's not the son of God. They'll, I mean, I'm not going to say they will kill you, but if, if you're a conservative, according to the Quran, you're worthy of death to, to, to say that, Jesus, that God has a son. It's a major problem. I was listening to a video just uh, earlier this week that was talking about uh, this comedian. He was speaking, and he was talking about what he grew up Um, believing in his Catholic church. He said, "Um, when I get to heaven, if I've been a good man my whole life, I'll get to heaven, but I I still have to kind of prove myself, so I'll have to walk on a path to heaven. But if I'm a good man, I'll have a big, wide path to walk on, like a super highway, like think of the highway in Atlanta, you know? It's like, that's how much room you'll have to walk. But if you're a bad person, then you'll have like a tightrope that you have to walk between two mountain peaks. Where is that in the Bible? You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. I don't know why it's being taught in Sunday school classes. I don't know why people are teaching it as a truth. Wait, I do know why. Because the devil wants to deceive people. And he's doing it. I bet you if you were to just try this this week, just ask people what they think they have to do to get to heaven. And just pull the answers. Coworkers, family members, whatever it is. Ask people and see what they say. <coughs> I think you'd be really surprised. And a lot of people would say, "Um, you got to be a good person. Bad people go to hell. (laughs) 
uh, you should read the Bible and see what that says, you know? <laughs> Kyla made me this medicine ball tea. It's amazing. But it's got a kick, man. So sometimes it's like, boom, I drank it this morning. And I was like, ooh. How many preachers like this? <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Someone would clip that on the internet. I'd have to have Trent go and clean it up. <laughs> Put a filter on me or something. <laughs> I want to look at three passages. First one we're going to look at is in Mark chapter 4. Jesus is in the thrust of ministry here. He's just getting started. And the disciples are starting to see things that are hard for them to believe. And a lot of people want to take a look at the disciples here and say, wow, these guys, I should have known better. No, they're learning. But there was an expectation of how much they were supposed to know. They had just done all this work. They go to a private place to take a rest, and the people are still following them. And so they depart. Jesus says, we're going to go over to the other side, and they, they come up on a storm. And here's what happens in verse 35 of Mark 4. The same day when the even was come, that means the sun is setting, he saith unto them, let us pass over into the other side. Put your anchor down there for a moment. Just circle that. Make note of that. Come back to it in a minute. When they had sent away the multitude, you know, they told them, look, we need a break. We're going to go. They took him even as he was in the ship, and there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. When I went to Israel the first time, we went on this sea. This is probably the, this is the Sea of Galilee here. And what is interesting is that uh, it's massive. Some, some, uh, some places call it the Lake uh, Gennesaret, and you're like, a lake? This is huge. I mean, lakes that we have here, you, know, you, you can see over to the other side. <laughs> this one, yeah, on, a, on a foggy day, you couldn't. And there's, it's very easy for storm systems to develop, out of, really, out of nowhere. That's not one of these. There was a purpose to this storm that was created, but it wasn't outside the normal for this to happen. And this is a major problem if you're a fisherman, especially if you're looking at the quality of boats that they had. You know, they weren't, they weren't on jet skis. They weren't on, uh, you know, fiberglass boats and all this kind of stuff. It's kind of sewn together with reeds and uh, bark that's, you know, rotting and stuff like that. Quite interesting. Uh, it's not going to be something if, if you're going on a trip to Israel and you get into what they were probably in, you're like, mm -mm, I'm going to wait for the ferry. You know, the thing with life rafts. <laughs> uh, but this, this, it was very basic and rudimentary as far as what they were in. So when a storm came up, there was, a, there was an attack on life automatically. That storm came up. The ship was now full. That doesn't mean just full of fear. They're probably about to sink with the amount of water that was coming in. And he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow. So Jesus is completely... I don't want to say he's unaware because he's not aware. We know he's holding all things together. But he is demonstrating a, a mindset and attitude of peace here in the middle of unforeseen chaos and certain death. And they awake him and said unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Now, a minute ago I told you to put a little anchor down on 35. We're going to draw two lines to that in a moment. This is the first line. The disciples' question. Carest not that we perish. Well, Jesus already made it known that they were going to go over to the other side. Now, some people would say this is like gotcha Bible study, but it's really not. This is a story for us to see. Jesus already said these things were going to pass. 
okay, a storm comes up. That's not going to change what he was going to have them to do. That's a good lesson for us there. But it also reveals the very fickle faith of the disciples. They automatically assume, by asking, carest thou not, they assumed he did not care (laughs) for their lives. He had just ministered with them to the multitudes. They had to literally send the multitudes away. It was too much. And now he's going to let them drown in the ocean? And he arose and he rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. The wind ceased and there is a great calm. Now we can kind of see what this may have looked like with uh, you know CGI and computer graphics and all that. But folks, that ain't the real thing. You imagine if you were out in the ocean and you saw a raging storm coming your way. You are to the point of death and a man goes to the bow of the ship and rebukes the sea and the waves with the phrase, peace be still, and it obeys. You're certainly wondering, who is this man that you're with? That's not the only thing that is said here. In verse 40, this is the second line to tie back to verse 35. He said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly. This is a very interesting statement, especially in Mark's gospel. There's, a, there's, there's kind of a, a badge of recognition with each gospel account. Mark's gospel is for his brevity. Mark speaks very briefly. He uses phrases like straightway and immediately because we believe that Mark is portraying Christ as the servant. So the servant does things quickly. He does things well. There's no delay. And so Jesus is portrayed in, in this way. A lot of the account is brief. Funny, it's, it's one of the longer gospels because the chapters are longer. But he, this phrase here, feared exceedingly, means that they, you, you may have seen this in other places, sore afraid. And they said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the legend of Jesus continues from there. He was already doing things that were the sign of a prophet. But remember, what was unique about Jesus is the way that he spoke, speaking with authority. And then seeing now that he has the power over the natural elements, there's a lot that they don't know about him that they're learning. But Jesus' remark is twofold. He asks them why they are so afraid. And the reason why he's asking that is because he's already given the statement of record, of, of, of truth, of what's going to happen in verse 35. We're going to pass over to the other side. He's questioning their intent to trust him. And he, he, he also backs that up by saying, how is it that ye have no faith. Now, in Luke's account, which we're not going to go to Luke's account, but he says, why do you have, O oh, oh, ye of little faith? So there's a difference here between little faith and no faith. What is the difference? I don't think that's the point of the passage. The point of the passage is, regardless of what happens circumstantially, God's will will come to pass. And God does have a will, and that will will come to pass, And it's important for you and I to recognize as followers of Christ, and I'm talking to you, I'm looking out here, I know all of you quite personally. I would say we're followers of Christ here. We want to live lives that bring praise, honor, and glory to the Lord. 
you are going to go through perilous circumstances, whether in reality or through, you know, mental torment. We go through this all the time. I mean, people are, I know that you can, you, you can understand this too. If we're not careful, we can be consumed by this. This can drive us crazy. You allow things to come into here that plant seeds of doubt. It is incredible to me how quickly I see people tailspin. I've said this to you before. I've had people call in. They have a Bible question. And they're totally okay. They're just like, hey, got a question. There's the passage. I'm curious, how does this impact salvation? What does this mean on a salvific sense? Blah, blah, blah. And I'll give them an answer. Then I'll have people call in and they can't get the question out. And they are beside themselves. Forget the opportunity that they have to lose their joy and lose their assurance. They've already lost it. They, they come into the call waiting for me to restore their salvation. And, and, and it, those are hard phone calls. Those are tough. I see emails that are sentences long. No capital letters, no proper grammar. You can tell this person picked up their phone, spoke into their phone out of utter fear and concern that because they heard some pastor on YouTube or the radio say something about losing their salvation, they automatically believed it and thought, am I really saved now? And it's just, it, it happens so quickly. And with those people, I try to schedule calls, but I, I don't even like saying the phrase schedule because obviously they're in a state of crisis. Hang on, you keep having your panic attack until next Tuesday when I have time. That's not going to work. So I pray for those people. And then I write them a response back. And I say, you've got to get your feet on solid ground. We are not moving from foundation to foundation. We're on one type of foundation. It's Jesus Christ. And, and so the question becomes, why are you so fearful? Why do you have no faith? If something were to happen in your life that caused great persecution, is that going to rock you so much that you're going to doubt whether God is able to deliver you from your sins? Does that now make the blood of Jesus less than? We, we've got to know and understand these things because the people that were with Jesus and saw the miracles and served with him, don't forget the apostles went out. They went out. And they were able to cast out all sorts of demons, perform all sorts of miracles, except for the one that required humility through prayer and fasting. They had a problem with that. What was the <laughs> You know that that was an issue for our friends and disciples because at the Last Supper, you know, I can imagine one of them, you know, got a toothpick in their mouth. Who's going to be the greatest? You know? It's like Jesus has just been betrayed. And that's, that's what's going on in the human mind. Well, my mom said, literally, there was a mother, I, I don't think it was that, that event, but some, I think it was James and John's mother, they were trying to advocate for them. What? How do you get there? You take your eyes off the Savior. Also here, on a surface level, we see Jesus' ability to command nature. You and I know this. I just did it today. I was curious about what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. So we were thinking about doing something, and I looked at my phone, and they, they want to tell me, oh, high 82, low 68, you know, light clouds. And I, I feel like all the time around here, it's like there's also a rip current in effect. You guys know, it's like 
all the time. It's like, yeah, I know. The sun came up too. Like we, <laughs> the rip current's still here. <laughs> anyway. But you know, tomorrow could be a very different day, weather-wise. We kind of just know what we know based off of experience. But Jesus could come and make tomorrow, you know, snow here in, in Tampa if he wanted. He could do it right now. We don't understand that kind of power. We think that we can control nature. You know, I mean, there, there, there are whole sectors of our government that are built around the idea that we, man, control the earth. And if you say, no, that's not true, go look it up. Your tax dollars fund it. That whole Green New Deal thing with AOC that she was pushing, which, you know, I think it was, she said, in 12 years, we would no longer be here. That's what she said on the floor of the Senate or Congress or something. And I remembered, I was like, if the Lord came back in 12 years, that'd be something. But I guarantee you that the Lord's going to come back not because of our green gas or our CO2 emissions. They were talking, you know, they were talking, I think it was in Switzerland, about cows. You know, cows just passing, you know, they're just passing gas. They want to, re they want to regulate that. They are starting to tell farmers, you cannot have this many cows. That's crazy. As if we control that. As if we can control what happens when it happens. Can we? That's what's so crazy about hurricane season. That's why your property insurance is going up, folks. Because we don't know what's going to happen this year. Oh, but we'll, we'll sell you a preparedness kit. We'll make you think that you know. But we can't control the weather. The Lord has control over that. We kind of, I, I think we can forget the, the teachings here. That's what I call a surface level teaching. Obviously, the first thing that sticks out in this story is the power that Jesus has. But the underlying application is, disciples, why did you not believe when I told you we were going to do something? What is causing you to have no faith? It's an interesting question. So now we go from the deliverance that Jesus has over the power of nature. Now let's look at it in today's New Testament church. That's what we are, by the way. We're a New Testament church. It's not a denomination. It's not a subset of Southern Baptists. It's biblical. Amen. We're a body of believers. We come together. We study the word. We try to edify the body and add to it. So how can this application here apply to us. Well, there's, there's two other places I see this automatically. Jesus also has power over ministerial suffering and persecution. Let's take a look in 2 Corinthians. You can let Mark go. Second Corinthians 6, page 1, 2, 3, 4. Wow. And all of you that struggle with completion there... You got it. Paul's speaking here. He's writing his second letter to Corinth, of which in that, in, in that city there are believers and unbelievers. But he, he, he's telling them here how they go about experiencing ministry. There's a section. We're gonna, I want you to look at it now. Verses 3, 4, and 5 are all the things that happen to them. That's why it says in 
in stripes, in imprisonments. And then verse 6 and 7 and 8 are how they experience victory in those circumstances, which is what you see by the two-letter the two word by, B-Y there. So I want you to recognize Paul is not saying, I'm not going to be in, in any of these things. He says, I am in those things, and this is how I'm delivered. This is how I have victory in those things, by this, by that, by that. And you'll, we'll see that in a minute. Verse 1. We then as workers together with him beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. It's a very common phrase in both of Paul's letters. To receive God's grace in vain means to waste this life that you have on whatever it is, on gluttony, on willful sin, on fearful doubt, on spiritual paralysis, whatever it is, don't waste this grace that God has given you in the Christian life, which you've received by faith. For he saith, I have learned, excuse me, I have heard thee in a time accepted in the day of salvation. I have succored, helped thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So obviously there are people who could be reading this account and have yet to come to faith in Christ. But he, he, he returns to his work in ministry. Keep that picture of the raging sea in your mind. Just stick it there on the bulletin board for a moment in your mind. Giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. But in all things, approving ourselves as what? The ministers of God. This is also said in, in, in chapter 5, just a few verses before, ambassadors. We're ambassadors or ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses. There's like that joke, and I've said it before, and I've moved on from it. But, you know, don't pray for patience or else you'll get trials. I mean, but yeah, that is how you develop patience. You go through suffering. And if, if, if your mindset is, oh, if I don't pray for it, I won't suffer. You got to like wake up and realize this life is full of suffering. If you don't suffer by the hand of others, we suffer by our own choices. I say this in counseling to people. I say, if you make a series of bad choices, you still have a bunch of choices to make, but the amount of good choices becomes smaller. But there's always the right choice to do what God's word says. But the more bad choices you make, the more bad choices you have to make, and that good choice gets less and less likely for you to choose. This is how people end up ruining their, ruining their lives. I sat across uh, from a guy when, when we were doing uh, the Bill Glass prison ministry. I, I can't remember what it was called. Behind the glass or something like that, behind the walls. I sat across a guy who had a life sentence because he took someone else's life. And he trusted Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. I probably talked with him for 15 minutes. And as we're going through the gospel and he's coming to the understanding of it, we were having a separate conversation now on something completely different. And he just started wailing. It was concerning. Obviously, you're sitting across from someone who took somebody else's life. You're, you're thinking, I don't know what could happen here. 
But I just, I just, I just asked. I was like, everything okay? What's going on? Can I pray for you? He said, I'm overwhelmed by the opportunities I've lost. But I want to do everything I can for the Lord now. That was like a person who fully understands the massive implication of his sin on his life, the fact that he can't change it, but he also understands his forgiveness because he wants to do whatever he can now. That's good. That's good. He's in a different set of circumstances than you and I are. Is he now considered less than because he's in prison? He's a part of the body of Christ. He's made choices. Those choices follow him, but he's made a good choice to believe on Jesus. Amen? (coughs) Look at verse uh, 5. In stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings. (coughs) Doesn't sound like he lived comfortably. No, he he was persecuted. So that's all the things that they experienced. And you know that Paul experienced stripes. Uh, that, that doesn't mean a, a style of clothing. He was beaten. I cannot imagine what Christianity would look like in America if we were beaten for our faith. I think it'd be strong Christianity, personally, because I see that in the, in, the, in the New Testament. We have a very cushy Christianity in, in, in America. I told you a couple of weeks ago I was driving by the AMC Veterans on uh, Anderson. And I saw these big signs that said, Elevation. And it had a cross on it. And I know enough about the music scene. That's Elevation Worship. And they had rented out six theaters to bring in some type of Sunday morning, 1030 a.m. rock concert thing. That's Christianity today. Christianity is a uh, radio dial. Christianity is a set of prayers before we go to bed. That's not what Paul experienced. And he needed deliverance from those things. And this is what he relied on. Now, the point is Jesus has power over this. How can we see Jesus in here even though his name is not mentioned? Well, you'll see in a minute. By pureness. That pureness must be something that comes from the new nature because there's nothing good inside the natural Paul. By knowledge. What kind of knowledge did Paul gain? Well, from Galatians, we know that he spent time with Jesus. That's where he got his doctrine. By long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost. Bingo. I want you to mark all. Everything that was said before that made possible by the Holy Spirit. But what is unique to Paul is the Holy Spirit directed him several times to go different places. What was one instance where Paul did not obey the Holy Spirit's instruction? Don't go to Jerusalem. It's a real unique study. I told you when we did that series a little while, it wasn't a series, but it was like a part A, part B, morning and evening, where we studied Paul in uh, the book of Acts. That's a real interesting place to just kind of sit down with the lawn chair of theology and go, what happened there? (laughs) Obviously, God had a plan for Paul, and Paul, he disobeyed very clearly. Then there was a man who, who came and gave an illustration and Paul still said, I'm still going to go. And then he, what happens when he gets to Jerusalem? Well, he meets with the council there. You know, they have a discussion, but he also goes and helps a brother out with the vow, which requires him to go to the temple, which many people see as a contradiction 
uh, even though we know what Paul believed, but it's a supposed contradiction. There is no power in the law. Why do these things? And then the riot happened, and then he was jailed. And, but he was used by God to go speak before the kings, just as it was said there in Acts chapter 9. Well, guess what? I'm not going to write a book explaining that. I'm just going to tell you this. God's will was done. He used Paul to do it. So when Paul says here, by the Holy Ghost, those are both positive things and things that he's learned. By the armor of righteousness, again, appealing to his salvation, on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor. Now, this section is interesting. This is based on perception. How they go, what spirit they come into a place, you know, the intent, and then how they're received. By honor and dishonor. Surely there were many that called him a heretic because he preached against the law. By evil report and good report. Does that mean that Paul went in with the intent to give an evil report? No, no, that's how he was received. As deceivers and yet true. This is a great statement. Many people looked at them as deceivers, but they were true in what they were doing. He's talking about how they're received. How deflating it must be to be whipped and beaten and mocked and then you come in with the gospel message, and they call you a deceiver. I think there'd be a lot of preachers that would quit at that point. Like, they're not worth my time. Paul kept doing it because he saw the greater need. As known, excuse me, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live. I love that. That's where I get that point that Jesus has the power to deliver us. How do I know that I live You'd say, well, you're here, pastor, you're, you're breathing. No, no. How do I know that I'm alive in the spirit? Oh, well, you jump up and down on the pew. You roll around. That's how we know. No, no. I know because the tomb is empty. That's how I know. Five days ago, I felt bad, not good. But my salvation was never in question there. I didn't wake up and go, oh, I've got a head cold. I've, you know, I've got 30% less eternal life today. Pfft. I've got more than I've ever had before. I have it all. And behold, we live as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich. I love that statement. If you're a soul winner... You're, make, you're bringing people into eternal riches. That's good. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. I, oh, I really like that. Like I was telling you today, people put their standard on all the stuff that they own. You know how quickly you can lose that in a fire? You know how quickly you can lose that sitting in a coma in the hospital? You got all this stuff and no one's there to take care of it. I was just talking to somebody this week. They said, I got terminal cancer. I'm dying. I'm sitting on the other end of the phone, and I'm going, I know this person's saved, though. That's the next thing that came out of his mouth. He said, I'm going to go see my wife soon. I know where I'm going to be. He said, that, you know, church is in the will, brother. I said, I'm glad to know where you're going is where I'll be, too. I don't know how many people would do with a call like that. What do you say? How do you encourage you tell him Christ. You tell him the, the joy and the hope. And I didn't have to say anything to him. He already knew. He knew. That's unique. 
That's not common in the world today. When Freddie was here, and he made that statement about a, a, a very prominent theologian of our day, who's still on the radio today, saying on his deathbed, I hope I've done enough to earn Christ. Do you know who that was? That was R.C. Sproul. That shocks a lot of people. Because you, you back up 15 years to R.C. Sproul when he was, I don't know if he was in his prime then. But even you go back, there's, there's many videos on YouTube. They're in four by three aspect ratio. You know, they got the digital line that, which shows you it's a VHS. You know, it's like old stuff. But that man preached with such confidence and he taught with such authority and all that. And here he is on his deathbed saying, I hope I've done enough. That's crazy. I talked to a man in my office who probably, you know, less than 10 people know on this planet. And he knows he's going to heaven. <sighs> That's something strong. That's as having nothing. Who is this guy? What's his name? I don't know him. He's known by God. <laughs> That's something special. And yet possessing all things. Jesus has the power to deliver us from that too, just as he delivered the disciples from the raging storm. And then lastly, we're going to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus has power to deliver over eternal separation. You might say, what's that? Oh, it's just death. It's what that is. This is a really good passage. And I, I think it'll be fun to read because I don't know how often you read 1 Corinthians cover to cover, but 1 Corinthians 15 is like massive. There's a lot that's taught there. And we're in the last part of this section before there's a discussion on the conversion that's going to happen at the rapture and all that. But look at this here, if you will, in verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh. This is on page 1227. Okay, what does that mean? All the types of flesh here on the earth, they're not all the same. You can see this if you took a basic uh, science class and you dissected a, a frog or whatever. You can see it's, it's considered flesh, but it's different. You know, we're not made of froggy flesh. <laughs> we're, not, we're, we're not built like a lion or things like that. That's what actually brings personification such power. You give things that are not those things different qualities, like... Oh, his face shines like the sun. Well, if that was true, no one would want to be around you. They couldn't stand it. You would be blinding everyone. What does that mean? Well, you have brightness. You have light to your face, your countenance. So Paul's going to explain some things here. He says, all flesh is not the same. There is one kind of flesh of men, another of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies, which means they knew something about the heavens and stars and all that. And bodies terrestrial, those are earthly places. Think of rocks and mountains and oceans and things like that. But the glory of the celestial is one, meaning it's unique to itself. And the glory of the terrestrial is another to itself. A mountaintop is different from a constellation in the sky. They have their own unique glory, their own identifications, the only thing, the, their own things that bring beauty to them. 
There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. So Paul's just spent some verses here explaining what we already know to help us understand something that we don't know. Isn't that really good? It's simple. It's so simple. And the reason why he's saying this in Corinthians 15 is, in 1 Corinthians 15 is because they're saying there is no resurrection. And Paul's like, really? If that's the case, we don't have anything. If Jesus is dead in the ground, then you are still dead in your sins. <laughs> he was a liar and we are of most men miserable. We're just self-afflicting ourselves. Why not just live it up at that point? So, as, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. What does that mean? Well, in the very act of reproduction, this does not mean that the reproductive acts are wrong. It doesn't mean that sex is wrong. Sex is something that God designed. It has a glory to it. It has a place to it. But two people come together and lay it with one another. Corrupt, corrupt, produce corruption. That's what it means to be sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Now that's something entirely different. Corruption here speaks to the fleshly human nature, the old man, and now when he's dead and gone, he'll be raised into something that is sinless. It's incorruptible. That's why he makes that statement, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Just like there's different bodies out there, celestial, uh, terrestrial, one of birds and fishes and all that, the resurrection body is different than the body we have right now. My wife and I were just talking about this. We had one of those conversations in the car where it was like, somebody record this, you know? <laughs> we were talking about, what's it like in heaven right now? We were, we, were, we were kind of chewing on that. And I just started going to my Bible knowledge, and I was like, well, the Bible says I'm, gonna, I'm going to get my body after those who come back with Christ. And Jesus in his body here went through and experienced different things. And it reminded me of this passage that, we're, that I knew I was going to teach on tonight. That new body, it'll be like the ones we have right now, but the difference is it will not be corrupted by sin. We don't understand anything like that. Folks, that's not like, oh, give me that body when I was, you know, 15 years old. That was the, those are the good old days. You still had sin. You've never experienced sinlessness. One day you will. And I bet you that'll be good. That's what he's talking about here. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, something brand new. This is all because of the resurrection of Christ. Verse 44, it is sown, made a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam back in the garden was made a living soul. You and I are still living souls. Mom and dad come together, produce little one, little one, living soul. Mom and dad, living soul. But the last Adam... And that's not you. That's not us in our new nature. That's Jesus. Because there's a certain element about that spirit. What does it say? A quickening spirit. 
This is one that has the ability to bring life to the dead. Ephesians 2 talk and talks about that. Uh, and he hath he quickened while we were in dead and trespasses and sins. 46. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. Our physical birth came first. Spiritual birth came after. This also flies in the face of God selecting somebody before they were born if they're saved. Here's, that process, here's how that process would go. I'll use Armando as an example. Armando is in heaven. Somehow, God chooses him. Or excuse me, he's just out there. God creates him, puts him into the stomach of his mother, says he's saved, but then he's born into sin automatically. God allows that creation of what he's made there in you and what he's selected to become tarnished, and then he'll resave you again and bring you back. In that analogy, you were spiritual first. God created you in a spirit way first, meaning born again unto eternal life first. Then he took it away from you and expected you to run out some play that he designed, and then he gave it back to you. It contradicts what Paul says here. Howbeit, that was not first, which is spiritual. The spirit nature, the new nature didn't come first. It comes second. It, all, it has to. Why? Because that which is natural comes first. But afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth. Earthy. That's funny to me. It's just a funny word. What's up, bro? You looking earthy today. <laughs> I don't think anyone would take that as a compliment. They go, oh, Really? I've been, I've been cutting back, you know, earthy me. <laughs> no, no, it's talking about, not talking about how you are in appearance. This is how you are in, in creation. You're the dust of the earth. That's what we are. The second man is the Lord from heaven. You tie that to what was just said in verse 45. The second Adam is a quickening spirit. Now he's going to give some application. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. Just as a rabbit through reproduction produces another rabbit, so a human produces another human of the earth. And as it is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we are born the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. As sure as a man and a woman coming together produces another human is your eternal life, is your resurrected body. It will happen. It is the natural product of our salvation. And it has nothing to do with what you do in this life. Jesus has given us that. You seeing it? You seeing how Jesus is everything? The only thing? And we saw him in Mark chapter 4 at the beginning of our study tonight. We saw him deliver the disciples from sure and certain death. But he also said to them, why don't you have faith? Well, here we are in 2024. We got people trying to be written off of ballots and all sorts of stuff happening where we as Christians may think, oh, we're, 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 we've got nothing to look forward to. I would hate for the Lord to come back and say, where is your faith? 49, and as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And that's exactly what Jesus was teaching to a very narrow-minded Nicodemus in John 3. 
You're a master of Israel and you don't know these things. I'm so glad he didn't look at Nicodemus and say, you dummy. He taught him what he needed to know. You know that Nicodemus was there in the end with Joseph of Arimathea? That's really good stuff. He got it. I don't know when, but I remember when he was told. (laughs) And so I can look at it and say, if there's hope for him, there's hope for me. And there's hope for you. But we can't let a storm, we can't let unforeseen chaos or persecution get us off the mark. You've got peace with God, even in the middle of the raging sea. Amen? Amen. I pray this has been a benefit to you. You can close your Bibles. Look up here. I want to share with you how you can know for sure that you have everlasting life. Oh, I got this thing right here. I thought this wasn't in here today, but it is. This hand to represent you and me. This represents our sin. Put it on top of our hand, my hand because all of sin and come short of the glory of God. There's nothing that we could do to ever pay this off. No amount of good works or trying or praying, whatever it is. We're not saved by good works. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Hebrews 9.22. Someone has to die for this. Wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God in hell. God loves us. He doesn't want this. He hates this, but he loves us. It separates us from him. Somebody's got to remove this that is in the way. That's Jesus. You've got to be absolutely sinless to get to heaven, but this is who we are, folks. Can't change it. Earthy is earthy, amen? <laughs> I mean, we just read it. Corruption is corruption. This hand represents the only begotten Son of God, His name is Jesus Christ. He came and lived that perfect life that you and I could never do. He became the sin offering for us on Calvary and for all the sins of all the world. He paid for it. He was buried. He rose again three days later. And the message that he gave to Nicodemus in the garden is the message that we should broadcast throughout all the world. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is how God has loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. You believe, you receive. And you'll never be brought under condemnation again. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you're watching on the internet and you've just come to the realization that you've been putting your trust in your good works, in the religion of your mother or father, or maybe just in your own prideful arrogance, you said, "I, I know, I'm good enough, I'm not that bad you've just come to a change of mind, we'd love to pray with you. Would you send us an email if you just put your trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone? We'd love to rejoice with you. For those of us here in the audience and those online who have already put your trust in Jesus Christ, are you looking at the master and say, carest not that we perish? Has it been a rough few, I don't know, days, weeks, years? I know that some people suffer for a long time. Have you looked at the master and assume that he does not care for you. You know, the disciples eventually got it. They understood, and there was no power on earth that could stop them from proclaiming that message. What was the power? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which you have right here tonight. Keep your eyes on Jesus.
Don't be afraid to talk to him. He cares for you. And we, as the body of Christ, we also care for you. Encourage one another. Stay close to the Savior. Father, thank you for our time of study. I'm so excited about what those little ones are learning in the back building. I thank you for faithful men and women that are here every week teaching our children. I pray that Calvary can stick around for a long time, Lord, and we pray that you come back today. Wouldn't that be something, Lord? But as we wait with joyful anticipation, give us the strength we need to do your will. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.